The title of my message this morning is Sin No More, Live Out the New Life. Several weeks ago, we began this series because we once again wanted to remind ourselves or rediscover for ourselves the seriousness and the severity of sin before God. We believe that our current culture today, since we are submerged within it, saturated upon it, uh, we, we, we started to feel that maybe we were getting a little lax when it came to the understanding of the severity of sin before God that we didn't consider it as serious as he did and does. And so we began by looking at a template, an illustration template of John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery and looking at sin from the various perspectives of those participants. And this morning I want to leave us and exit this series, though there is more to discuss and there is more to uh, talk about, and we will going forward in the new year, especially with some of the sins that we find within the Old Testament that had just paralyzed the people of God. And one of those sins was the sin of idolatry, which we're going to talk about next year. But I want all of us here this morning to understand that as a believer in Jesus Christ, God does not want us to continue any longer in the old life, the old self. He wants us to live within the new life in which he has given us. One of the realities of Christianity is the fact that we are new people in Christ why then should we live any longer as if we were not? We are meant to reflect the glory of God in all that we do, think, and say. It's imperative that we understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not meant to continue in our old life any longer. Now we know that that old nature lingers. And we know that we struggle with the flesh. But the overall consistency of our life should be reflectant of the reality that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. That should be the norm rather than the exception. So this morning I want to bring you to a passage of Scripture that we find in the New Testament. It is one of three where Paul exhorts us as believers in Jesus Christ, to live within the new life in which God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. This is paralleled with Romans 5 through 8 and also Colossians 3. If you'd like to look at those on your own, we'll look at Colossians 3 in just a moment. But that being said, it was Paul wanted the individuals that he was writing to to know this, that it is important and so important that you know that you are no longer subjected to the old life that you are a new creation and therefore can live in the new life that Jesus Christ has given you. As we look at chapter 4 together, we start in verse 17, and let us begin to read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Whenever we pull out a passage like this, it's important to ramp up to it. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are some of the most theologically rich chapters of the New Testament, where Paul summarizes for us all that Christ has done for us, 
every blessing that is in heavenly places imparted to us through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for us, and he outlines that for us in three chapters. You know, all the blessings that Jesus has brought about, chapter 1. Death to life in chapter 2. We are all one in the gospel, chapter 3. Just as quick little summaries of those chapters. This is what God has done for us. When you come to chapter 4, verse 1, you are met with this urgent request. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 4, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace." Paul's desire was that after they realized and had read all that God had done for them in the person of Jesus Christ, it was now imperative that they walk in a manner worthy of that calling, worthy of all that God has done for them up until this point, especially to maintain the unity in which Christ had brought about within the body of Christ. He knew that sin would be detrimental to the health, to the consistency, to the consensus, or to the unity of the body of Christ that has been established in the person of Jesus Christ. So now walk worthy of the manner in which you were called, meaning now reflect the realities of who you are in Jesus Christ. And by the time we get to verse 17... He begins to remind us that believers must abandon immoral lifestyles. Believers must abandon immoral lifestyles. As he proceeds in chapter 4, believers then are instructed to adopt what I call an immortal lifestyle. Immortal, meaning that we are reflecting in our lives today the reality of our everlasting life that we have in the person of Jesus Christ, that we can only enjoy because we are new creations in Christ. So as Paul now moves us to the abandonment of an immoral lifestyle, he says here in verse 17 very clearly that there should be a difference between you and as he classifies here for us or summarizes us uh, here for us or stereotypes here for us in this word Gentile. It means those who do not believe in God, who are not aware of God and so forth, and who live in the futility of their minds. He states in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he clarifies how they walk in this one statement. And then begins to describe what this statement means in our text. In the futility of their minds. This is how he characterizes those Gentiles. And in the Greek it's very clear that this is the statement that he wants us to fix upon. And then he goes on to explain that statement in the following sentences. He wants us to know that the main characteristic of one apart from God, who we would consider here a a parallel character uh, of a non-believer, someone who does not know Christ, they walk in the futility 
of their minds. One of the things that we have become all too aware of this year as leaders, as elders, is that many Christians are operating in a sense, divorced from the overall meta narrative of the reality of life. There is a meta narrative that arches the reality of life, and that is God and His Word. Now, many Christians and non believers, I think, are divorcing themselves from that reality, and they're operating within a microcosm of that macro uh, understanding of the world. They're operating in a very small perception of that world, meaning that I'm really not concerned with the overall. I'm just very worried and concerned about the temporal. And I live kind of day by day, and I just kind of let things play out the way I will, the way they will, and so forth. But there's really no meaning to the past. There's really no meaning to the present. And there's really no purpose of trying to anticipate the future. We're seeing that more and more. It's a simple conclusion that they have divorced themselves from any kind of understanding of any kind of big picture narrative. So it would make sense to me that one apart from God here would walk in the futility of their minds. It means aimless, means they're going somewhere, but they don't know where they're going. There's a lot of energy, but not a lot of productivity As one stated about the characteristic of these individuals who walk in the futility of their minds, their lives were empty, purposeless, and fruitless. There was great activity, but no progress. They chased bubbles and shadows and neglected the great realities of life. Now, when we separate ourselves from the understanding of who God is and that God exists and so forth and that He has a Uh, an overall arching plan for all of his creation, we then have to fill that vacuum with something else. And what happens is, for those apart from Christ, is that they fill that understanding with their own passions and their own lusts, and they then begin to live out those things in their lives. The reason for the futility of their minds, number one, is found in the next verse, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so he now goes on to describe how the futility of their minds has been debased. Number one, they are darkened in their understanding. First, they have a native incapacity to understand spiritual truth. And then because of their rejection of the knowledge of the true God, they suffer blindness as a judgment from the Lord. When he talks about them being alienated, distant from God, because of their hardness of their hearts. This was brought about by their willfully deep-seated ignorance and by the hardness of their hearts. They rejected the light of God's creation and in conscience and had turned to idolatry. Again, if we are going to separate ourselves from God and we are not going to acknowledge Him as God, Romans 1 makes it clear that ever whatever we put in that place is an idol before God. This is how 
nasty the sin of idolatry actually is. And I think it's one of the most deceptive sins in our culture today. A culture and society that truly believes that we are free from idolatry. And I tell you, it's running rampant in our culture today. And as a result, they are after plunged farther and farther from God. They have become calloused to this. No longer do they have that any type of sensitivity and their callousness to any understanding of God, to their distance from God, has left them to pursue their own personal passions and lusts, and they have given themselves to sensuality and impurity, lacking any sensitivity to the to the thongs of God, to the understandings of God, uh, that God gave them over to their lusts and passions of their own particular flesh. Again, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 1 even further. But we are not like this. This is not describing us. As one stated, he says, the Christian cannot pattern himself after the unsaved person because Christians have experienced a miracle of being raised from the dead. His life is not futile, but purposeful. His mind is filled with the light of God's word and his heart with the fullness of God's life. He gives his body to God as an instrument of righteousness and not to sin for the satisfaction of his own selfish lusts. In every way, the believer is different from the unbeliever, and therefore the admonishment is to walk not. Look with me in verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. As another pastor wrote, in contrast to the ungenerate person who continually resists and rejects God, the Christian hears the call to lay aside the old self, Their verb means to strip off as you would take off dirty clothing. The tense indicates that this is a once and forever action that occurs at salvation. It's a time where we release ourselves, that God, I should say, releases ourselves from this old life to embrace the new life that is in him as he states in verse 20 again and begins to move then to the second point of our time together in this text, and that is that believers must adopt an immortal life, a life of everlasting life. But this is not the way you learned Christ. He begins with an argument here, a persuasion. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's stating here that once you've truly experienced Christ for yourself, There's no way that you could be ignorant of the fact that God now exists and that he has a plan for his creation. And there is this narrative that is governing all of creation that God has purposely placed in place that we may then follow its lead. He says, once you've learned Christ, once you've heard about him, once you were taught by him, it's more than just learning academic facts about God. It means to learn Christ. It means to experience him for yourself. As one stated, he said, 
He did not say learn about Christ here at this point, because it is possible to learn about Christ and to never be saved. To learn Christ means to have a personal relationship to Christ so that you get to know him better each and every day. He says, I can learn about Winston Churchill if I read books upon him, because I may own very and many books about him, and I can secure other books about him and about his life, but I can never learn him because he is dead. Jesus Christ is alive, and therefore I can learn Christ through a personal fellowship with him. Our interaction with Christ is not meant to stay in the theoretical or in the uh, academic. It's meant to be lived out and experienced in a relationship type of sense. Spending time with God in His Word, we learn about His character. We learn all that He has done for us. We learn about who He is and who we are. We learn about the passion that He has towards us and how he demonstrated that passion for us as he went through the different steps that he went through to redeem us back to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. This is meant to be experienced. It's not meant to simply be learned. It's meant to be embraced and enjoyed as a believer in Jesus Christ. But once we do so, it is impossible for us then to remain the same as if we had not met him at all or knew him at all. And therefore, Paul says, put off the old and put on the new. This is done by the renewing of the spirit of our minds. For this new is the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. What has happened positionally to us must now take place practically in and through us. Meaning it's not sufficient that we just know about these things, but we must allow this theology and this understanding of God to have its perfect work in us and play out through us in our lives. Paul stated something earlier in Ephesians. I'll read it to you. If you'd like to read it with me, you find it in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Now listen to this. As we read one of the theologically rich chapters of the book of Ephesians, we come to this reality of what God has done for us. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, verse 4 of chapter 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up to him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that the, in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul is drawing the conclusion here in chapter 4 that with a reality such as this, 
That God found us who were dead in our trespasses and sin and He made us alive and He raised us up and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show His immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For the grace of God saved us by faith and that faith was not even of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. We have then therefore become his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We can't continue on in the same way if we've truly experienced Christ in our life. We can't stay the same. He's one of those individuals that once you meet him, he radically changes your life forever. You can't remain the same. An individual who states that they believe in Jesus Christ and remains the same, I have to question if they truly believe in Christ at all. Because Christ changes people. Our experience with Him changes us. As Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 1-4, he states, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above and not the things on the earth. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. If God has done this for us, and we have experienced this, Paul's argument is saying that we cannot be the same any longer if we've learned Christ. And that's what he is saying here. As one summed all this up, he said, this is what Paul's argument was. You no longer belong to that old corruption of sin. You belong to the new creation in Christ. Take off the old self. And how do we do this? By being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Conversion is a crisis that leads to a process within a person's life, he states. Through Christ, once and for all, we have been given a new position in the new creation. But day by day, we must by faith appropriate what he has given us as individuals. I like something that he says there. Two things, actually. Notice how often Paul refers to the mind of the individual and where the work begins. Today, I'm very concerned that many Christians are reducing their Christian life to mere experiences. Allowing those experiences to be qualified, not by what they have learned or what they have grasped from the Word of God, but by mere feelings. And they are looking for one emotional experience after another to state, oh, oh, God was so present, I never cried like that before. Or, you know, uh, I was so moved by that song as, as she was singing it, and so on and so forth. And, and when you reduce God to just those emotional experiences, you have a tendency to remain in a very shallow state with God. What God is looking for is that as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those epiphanies, those revelations that God gives you through His Word have such an impact on your life that they are forever transforming of your life. Meaning, now that I know this, I can't continue on the same way any longer. And it's so vastly superior to any feeling. Now, a feeling may uh, succeed that encounter 
where God brings about the reality of your heart. And as you read God's word, you see how desperately wicked your heart is. And you are brought to that reality. And the consequence is, is that you are in a desperate state before God and so forth. And then as you grasp that reality, you begin to weep in repentance. That experience or that emotion followed the revelation that God gave through his word. It's the revelation that transformed, not the experiential, heartfelt encounter or reaction that changed your life. Notice how Paul often talks about the renewing of one's mind. Because once we are introduced to Christ, once we believe on Christ by faith for our salvation, we are then adopting a meta-narrative now that should radically change our life. It changes what we do. It changes how we view the world. It changes everything about us. We can't help but to change in the light of that revelation. As he stated here, this pastor, he said, conversion is a crisis. It changes everything within us. It doesn't allow us to remain the same any longer. It, it, put it this way, it's like, an, it's like the atomic reaction. It just blows everything up and begins to build it all new again. It doesn't allow us to remain in that state of indifference. And Paul then goes on to apply all of this truth by showing them in verses 25 through 32 specific areas that would be detrimental to the... Um, health of their body, their unity. And he says, therefore, having put away any falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Lying should never be part of the Christian life in any shape or form, especially if we are going to promote unity amongst the body of Christ. A lie is a statement that is contrary to fact spoken with the intent to deceive. As Paul gives us these examples and these individual principles, he is showing us what sins will be detrimental to the health and the unity of the body of Christ. So if we as a church adopt these, we shall also be healthy. So number one, let us not lie to one another. As he sees, this lying has to do with his neighbor. And then he goes on to clarify, we are members one of another. So he appears to be following his uh, initial thought from the first few verses of Ephesians 4 when he's speaking on the unity of the body of Christ. Then he goes on and he says, Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is one of those emotions that arises when we are provoked to a degree beyond our personal ability to contain. As one stated, anger is emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. It is possible for an individual to be angry, though Paul later in chapter 5 will go on to say, now don't be angry at all. But if it does occur... God was angry in the Old Testament. We'll find that several times as we go through portions of the Old Testament next year. But he says, do not let that anger play out in your life in the 
essence of sin. Don't let it go any farther than it needs to go. Resolve the issue immediately. That's what he means by dealing with your anger before the sun goes down. Don't let it go any longer than need be. Deal with it so it doesn't fester. Now, we've all been there, right? Something has provoked us to anger. Instead of dealing with it, we've allowed it to fester. And that festering, unfortunately, had manifested itself later on and caused even more difficulties and problems to occur. We've all been there, I'm sure. Paul's saying, don't do that. Deal with it right away. As one stated, William Klein, he says, rather, he insists that the Christian not harbor anger within the body, whether it is justified or creeps in unsolicited, As one church father stated, it is better not to grow angry at all, but if one ever does fall into anger, he should at least not be carried away by it towards something worse. Address the cause of anger immediately. Seek forgiveness. Seek reconciliation quickly. And so preserve the health and the unity of the body of Christ. Because he states here, give no place or opportunity for the devil. Allowing that anger to be a, a stepping stone to some type of discord or disunity amongst the body. He says, deal with it. 28, verse 20, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Again, If there is the possibility of one depriving another from their personal property amongst the body, obviously unity cannot be maintained in such a way. There would always be that concern of something being appropriated by another unjustifiably. But he says here, now, you who've stolen, and apparently there were some there who used to steal before they became Christians. But rather, to that person, go to work, labor, doing honest work with your own hands for the purpose. Now look at this. Not just for the purpose of meeting your own needs, though that is implied here, but so that you may have something to share with anyone who is in need. There's the remedy. Don't steal any longer. Go to work. Provide for yourself. Meet your own needs. But also, be sensitive to the needs that are around you. I think it is interesting that Paul takes it one step further. He could have limited it just to supplying for your own personal needs, but he went on to say, if we are going to maintain unity, then not only look to meet your own needs, but then look to help meet the needs of others within the body. So steal no longer. Stealing comes in many different forms. It's not just physically removing property from one and appropriating it for yourself. If you are at work and you are, say, an hourly employee, stealing can be standing around the water cooler for an hour and a half or sharing your faith with another person while you're on company time. These are all considered time theft, stealing. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody at work, take them out to lunch on your own private time. Meet with them after uh, work is over or concluded. Take them to breakfast before work begins. There are many opportunities. 
Since tax time is coming, I must remind all of us that stealing is not preparing our taxes properly. As much as it hurts all of us. As much as we're being robbed already. It hurts. But God is bigger. Right? And it's God who provides all of our needs according to his riches and mercies. But I think it is interesting this individual that is provoked to steal, meaning that he is looking to gain by others and not working for it himself. He goes, no, no, no. Not only you work for yourself, but now give to others. I think that's fascinating. Truly, that would be the remedy for one who steals. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The corrupt talk that he is speaking of here is things that we may say to one another that would bring someone down, to tear someone down uh, purposely. Uh, Cruelty, uh, belittling uh, would be corrupt talk. Making fun of another would be corrupt talk. There's many different forms of this talk, but he's looking for us to edify each other through what we say, build each other up. You know, obviously Jesus made it clear that whatever proceeds from the mouth is or first begins in the heart of the individual. So we must understand that what we say is actually a reflection of what's going on inside of ourselves which is sometimes a scary thought in and of ourselves. Remember that James told us the tongue can do a lot of damage, right? Tongue can do a lot of damage towards unity and keeping the body of Christ healthy and strong. Now, what he is not saying here is that when correction is needed, correction is not tearing someone down unnecessarily Correction is just that, correcting somebody and then in that correction, building them up. So it's not that we just have to say positive things to one another, positive, encouraging, Caleb, uh, one another to fulfill this, but corrupt. Anything that is tainted by sin, anything that is self-seeking, anything that would ruin another to make us look better. Uh, Paul says this should not be. But, again, realize that correction can be just as important to the edification of the individual than just hearing something edifying in and of itself. In verse 30, then he goes on, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grieving of the Holy Spirit is when we provoke the Holy Spirit and bring him to sorrow because of our own personal sin. Paul says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God who is actively working in the presence of of the body of Christ. Our sin will do that. 
Especially sin manifested in one of these ways, our lying to one another, our stealing from one another, our anger towards one another, our corrupt talk towards one another. All of these things will grieve the Holy Spirit who is here to continue to maintain the unity that Christ obtained for us in his death and resurrection. See, we cannot stay the same if we are going to truly reflect that which we say we believe. If we have truly experienced the salvation that Christ has provided, then we must be different. We must act differently. And we do so for the health of the body of Christ. He says, one wrote here, he says, when believers disregard God's will concerning how the community of Christ ought to behave, they cause grief to God's Spirit, whose work it is to build up the body of Christ. Paul stated something very similar to this in a parallel passage. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. Paul writing to another church, desiring the same from them. We read the first portion of this passage together earlier in our time together, but now we will conclude it by looking as Paul develops his thought even further. If then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now notice how he concludes his thought. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. And now this list is a little bit more comprehensive than the one we just looked at. Sexual immorality has always been a problem amongst the body of Christ and those who are in Christ. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions and evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying again, if you've truly been affected by the gospel, and the gospel has had its perfect work within you. You cannot stay the same way any longer in your life. We began again this series some weeks ago, rediscovering the severity and the seriousness of sin. That believers today are somewhat becoming desensitized to sin because the culture is remedying that conviction by stating that all immorality now appears to be fair game. In many cases. 
As the Christian somewhat becomes desensitized, they therefore don't realize or they miss the fact that it is not the world that sets the standard for what is sin and what is not sin. It is God and only God that sets that standard. And as we began this series, after exploring that lack of sensitivity that many display in their Christian life, we then moved to remind ourselves how offensive sin is to God. And there's no better illustration of that than the understanding of what God needed to do to remedy sin within the life of the individual. He needed to come. He needed to die. He subjected himself to his own creation. He was brutally handled in the manner in which he was and then crucified all of these things, necessities for the atonement of sin. The only way that this sin was going to be overcome is by God doing what He has done. This is contained in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not meant to govern a person's life just at the moment of conversion, but the entire life of that individual. Because I am no longer uh, belong to myself. I now belong to my Lord and Savior, my King. I've been bought not with precious stones or gems or, or such. I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to overcome this sin, and Christ produced that way, and that way is now contained in the gospel. We notice that the severity and the seriousness of sin must be held not only by the laity in the church, but also by the elders enforcing that through church discipline, which we discussed and talked about together in a couple of our sessions. We discovered that it is the Word of God that lays out the standard of what is righteousness and what is sin before God. There is no other thing. It is not our own personal decision-making that allows us to say what is right and what is wrong. It is God's Word from an outside perspective of one of complete true holiness and righteousness, allowing us to know what violates His character and what glorifies it. And then we went on that the individual must walk in confidence. Number one, confidence of the fact that they no longer have to sin. As we looked at Romans chapter 6 together, we discovered that we are no longer bound to that old life of sin, that we can walk in the newness of life in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only that confidence, we then move to conviction, demonstrating how the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer, convicting them of sin and bringing them into the image of their Savior. And lastly, as we conclude for this year, we must walk in the newness of life. And hopefully we demonstrated to you this morning that in Ephesians chapter 4, the reason I selected this text was because then Paul moves it, saying how important it is for the healthy of the body of Christ. There are many churches today that are sick inwardly because of the carnality of the laity. And yet we want to be all that God would have us to be and we glorify Him with everything that we can glorify Him with in our lives. And to do so, we must leave the old life and embrace the new life. As Paul demonstrated, saying, look, notice these sins, lying, stealing, corrupt language, anger, this is all going to be a detriment to the health of the body of Christ. We must not go there. We must stay away from there. We must live out this new life 
That will be our objective for 2016. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's a gospel resolution, right? If I've been saved by the gospel, this is then going to take place in my life. It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on God and His Spirit. I'm just going to be obedient to that work. I remember those words, and I close with these. In John chapter 8, when it was finally towards the end, and Jesus had said those famous words, he said to all of those standing there, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And none could cast due to the fact that they realized that their own sin prevented them from doing so. As he was alone with this woman caught in the act of adultery, he asked her, who is it that condemns you? She says, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. Knowing that it would be he who would pay for the burden of that sin just weeks from that moment. How can we stay the same any longer if we've been renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is our opportunity today. Regardless of what 2016 brings, this is our opportunity. If things are getting darker and darker and darker and darker in our culture and in our world, we should rejoice. You know why? Because it lays the backdrop for our lights to shine even brighter. And that's the, that's the initiative that we should take. We should take advantage and capitalize on this time that we have. And the only way we're going to do this, we're not going to reach the world by being like the world. Let's abandon that whole idea. Bad idea. Okay? We're going to reach the world by being like Jesus Christ. Now they're going to hate us right off the bat. They're going to hate us. Some are going to persecute us. Some are going to make it difficult on us. But we must stay on task, on mission. We must keep going. Because as dark as this world is going to get, it cannot subdue the light that has come in the world that you and I now represent in and of our lives, reflecting the glory of God. That's our hope for 2016. Leave it behind now. Whatever it was, leave it behind. Whatever you had put up in that closet saying, you know, one day I'll deal with this thing, but not now, leave it behind and move forward. Whatever it is, if you need that change of calendar from the 31st to the 1st or however, if you need that as some kind of line of demarcation, then use it, I don't care, but just say, I am not going any farther in the way I was. If this area of my life is causing me difficulty, I'm going to bring it out into the light of God's Word. I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to deal with it openly. I am not going to continue on any longer because Christ has freed me and allowed me to sin no more.